Welcome to the MIT Center for Real Estate Meet the Visionaries podcast. The topic today, data, climate, and real estate, overcoming challenges with cutting-edge technology. Today, we'll hear from Mr. Michael Ferrari, Chief Scientific Officer of Climate Alpha, a pioneering AI-powered location analytics platform. Climate Alpha has revolutionized how we assess and price the future of geography in a rapidly changing world. In this episode, Michael sits down for an exclusive conversation with Viet Nguyen, a current Master of Science in Real Estate Development student in the Center for Real Estate. Now, let's get into the conversation. So I'm glad to have you here, Michael. I'm really excited to have you. Um, and I'm really excited to be able to speak to you and interview you. So thanks for being here. No, thanks for having me. Yeah. Um, so I first wanted to ask you about like your background. Could you tell us a little bit about how you like came to, well, you can start with like your whole background and how you came to like Climate Alpha, how you got in uh, contact with Parag and became like the chief like climate investment officer at uh, Climate Alpha. Sure. So, I mean, in my particular case, uh, it has not been a linear path. Uh, so I started off and my plan was to go into academia. Um, shortly after I did my qualifying exam for my PhD, I started working with Mars, um, the food company, mm-hmm. right? Uh, everybody thinks of Mars as M&Ms, but you know, they actually have a whole variety of food products, um, human and pet food. And I got into the commodities world. So I started to apply the climate models that I was building on the academic side to how does Mars manage their exposures in things like coffee, cocoa, sugar, corn, soy, wheat, natural gas. I mean, really any physical uh, or agricultural commodity, which Mars has an exposure to. Um, and I was just captivated by that. So I made a quick pivot. You know, I still finished my PhD, but instead of doing the academic route, I actually stayed on the commercial side. And I've kind of been in this space that's now called climate tech. It wasn't called climate tech 25 years ago, but it's called climate tech now, where we're blending climate science, data science, and fintech all together towards understanding, you know, really the impact of climate as a driver, um, as well as a recipient, um, and how it weaves its way through the global economic spectrum. Awesome. Yeah. So so you started in October 22. Is that correct? Yeah. So climate office, yeah, kind of fast forward, uh, Prague and I have, uh, Prague, our CEO, um, we kind of worked on the academic side, doing a lot of public facing articles on a lot of these themes. How does climate affect food supply? How does it affect the Belt and Road Initiative? A lot of things that are really kind of more towards the macro or the geopolitics space. Mm-hmm. And um, so we've been doing that for about five or six years. And then over the last year or two, uh, Parag wrote a book called Move. And one of the premises behind Move was, you know, how climate is going to serve as a migration driver towards, you know, where people are going to live, how they're going to live, how it's going to, again, serve as this backdrop for how society is structured. Uh, and then one thing led to another and Move as kind of the catalyst, you know, kind of precipitated into a commercial business. So we formally... You know, raised the seed round, launched, opened our doors in October of last year. Uh, so we're just about a year old right now. Awesome. Yeah. Um, so I guess, could you expand a little more on like the founding of Climate Alpha and what like inspired you both to kind of... Well, like I said, it was almost like this natural evolution of us working together, mm-hmm. um, you know, and then Prague's book was kind of the, you know, the, the spark that launched this. Uh, and then Prague, even at one point, was talking about how his parents were moving from one location to another. He was kind of using... You know, his, mm. his mindset on, you know, what can we mm-hmm. do about deciding where his parents should live? Um, and then again, it just kind of, it kind of just happened organically. And then, you know, one thing led to another, went from writing papers to, you know, let's build a commercial business plan around this. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, so then Prague and kind of the core technology team were working on this and kind of stealth for a while. 
And during that time, I was just strictly a board member. I was working for a different hedge fund. Uh, and then once we kind of got a critical mass and we raised our capital, then I kind of moved from being just a board member to being an active member of the company. Okay. So the, your LinkedIn is a little deceptive then when you, you were definitely there at the very beginning. Yeah. I mean, as a board member, yeah, yeah. I've been there since day one. Okay, and okay. Uh, now I kind of serve both, you know, as the chief science investment officer, as well as uh, still retaining a board member seat. Awesome. So I next wanted to ask you, how does Climate Alpha interpret and address the concept of turning climate risk into opportunity? This is, um, and this is actually goes back to a space that I, I've been in. A lot of times when you just think of climate impacts, mm -hmm. you know, our minds automatically go to risk. Like, how are we preventing against something bad happening? Mm -hmm. And, you know, let's be clear, there's a lot of bad things that are happening with climate as a driver. Now, when we think of the capital world, like how capital gets deployed, how, mis how risk is managed, what we're trying to do is take, it's, it's really just the other side of the equation, but it's the same problem. But instead of just focusing on what not to do, mm -hmm. We're really focusing on how can we be proactive? How can we understand these forces as drivers, not just climate, you know, climate in the context of all these other things that matter. So for real estate, it still is, you know, taxes and schools and employment and everything else that drives real estate valuations, you know, proximity to jobs. Now we're just using climate as an amplifier, saying that going forward, the way the climate system is unfolding, how it's exerting its influence on society it's going to lead to dislocation. It's mm -hmm. going to lead to mispriced assets, either overvalued or undervalued. So we're bringing all that together. The, the, I mean, the name Climate Alpha, I would say it's a little bit of a misnomer because it it's not just climate. It's how does climate interact with everything else that's going on mm -hmm. in the world. And then we use that as a way to you know identify investments and identify what is the opportunity behind deploying capital. So you know, the risk side, I mean, there's there's no easy space here, but the risk side, it's easier. It's easier to say what not to do. Mm -hmm. We're trying to say, okay, we know what not to do. We know where not to go, but there's still capital that needs to go somewhere. So what do we do with that capital and how do we invest that in a constructive way that is accretive, you know, to mm -hmm. value for society? Okay. So I, I think I get what you're saying. You don't want to be reactive. Like, okay, it's like people say, don't build on the coast of Florida or like, you know, somewhere in California where there's like a mudslide. Right. But you want to be proactive. Uh, could you expand on that a little more? And that's, I mean, the Florida example is a good example. So, um, you know, because never people talk about things like sea level rise, mm -hmm. you know, the discussion always goes to Florida and it always is kind of like South Florida. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we're not saying South Florida now, because if you look at what's happened with Florida property values, there have been a lot of reasons that values have been appreciating and that's going to continue. So we're not saying South Florida now, but there will be a point where we might say, okay, it's still good from an asset manager's perspective. It is still good to put capital into Florida. Mm -hmm. But at some point, these climate factors are going to shift that dynamic. And there will be a point where we would want to sell. It might be five, seven years from now. We don't know what that is. But if we just say sell Florida now, you're still going to miss on that upside. Mm -hmm. So we try to take a balanced view okay. and, you know, again, use it's really for, um, we kind of term it patient capital, right? Mm -hmm. So if somebody's just out to want to look at their exposure, look at the portfolio, and like a typical manager wants to do, and at the end of the year, you know, what, how am I up or down for the year, and what is my annual number? Um, this is a longer duration thesis, so you kind of have to let this play out a little mm -hmm. bit and be a little bit more patient. And it kind of works hand in hand with a shorter. I mean, there there is. Um, just I was talking about how my career was on a straight line. You know, markets on a straight line either, right? I mean, mm -hmm. We talk about today and say whatever your endpoint is. Say you're a long duration investor and you're looking at a five to seven year return. That doesn't mean that your capital that you deploy today is just going to go straight up five to seven years from now, right? Mm -hmm. There's going to be a lot of volatility and all of variability. So how do we blend that longer duration thesis with the shorter term activity that we know will still drive markets? And it's a challenge, but you know, I think we do this in a different way. It's just trying to 
allow us to view, kind of broaden the aperture a little bit and look at how investors judge returns, how we manage the risk around the returns. And ultimately, you know, when we think about sustainability, right? Because we all think about sustainability and we automatically go to kind of the environmental sustainability piece, mm-hmm. but that doesn't mean anything without financial sustainability. So we're trying to make sure that a sustainable investment paradigm is equal parts environmental and financial, right? Or, you know, because if you don't have, if you don't have both, the word sustainability doesn't mean anything. Mm. So we're trying to, you know, kind of shift the mindset of investors a little bit and allow them to A, be more patient, and then B, kind of look at that, you know, sustainability platform as more of a holistic mindset as opposed mm. to just kind of one or the other. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you how investors like responded to that. Are they some receptive or some kind of like kind of on the fence to push back? Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's all over the place, right? So uh, I think those that do have a longer duration thesis, those that have maybe bought into ESG for reasons that are not the reasons that most people think ESG. You know, a, lot of, a lot of ESG is kind of getting forced down people's throats mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. And you're forced to evaluate through these lenses and forced to fit your investment profile under these bucketed categories. Um, and it becomes a box checking exercise. So for those, it's a little, you know, it, it'll take some time. But for the others that kind of see the opportunity, and again, if they have uh, that balanced view and they have the ability, and typically that comes with more capital, mm-hmm. but if you have the ability to, to take a longer time horizon um, and look to really spot mispriced assets that we think will appreciate, you know, appreciate over the course of the next, you know, five, seven, 10 plus years, uh, those are the ones that really seem to get it right away. And um, we had an interesting meeting last week. So our chairman, Chris Marlin, who's a former Lennar executive, uh, we were down at um, Zonda Homes sponsored a, a master plan community conference down in Tampa last week. And um, so I gave a little talk on kind of the usual climate driver stuff. And then Chris and I had a fireside chat with the moderator. And his quote was uh, something along the lines of, um, everyone in this room will be a client of ours at some point. It might be 20 years from now, but it will happen, right? So it's, uh, mm-hmm. but it, it underscores the idea that, you know, right now there's always, you know, you give a talk and then sometimes there's people sitting in the back with their arms crossed saying mm-hmm. it doesn't really matter. Mm-hmm. Um, but others, you know, they're receptive. And the, the thing about what we're seeing, um, and I think this can kind of serve as a tailwind, it doesn't really matter whether you believe in climate change or not in terms of the human influence on climate change. Mm-hmm. It doesn't matter if you believe the models are right or wrong. Um, I mean, they're right, but that's not <laughs> right. But even if you don't believe that, say, okay, yeah. I want to, yeah. because climate change is polarizing, right? Mm-hmm. People are always kind of like, it becomes, yeah. I mean, and it's been shown, there's actually another study this week that shows that everyone's views on climate change is very closely aligned to their political persuasion, mm-hmm. right? Right or wrong, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Um, but this doesn't even matter because what we're seeing, I'm sure you've seen, um, all the insurance companies every year, you know, pick your insurance company, they put out their billion dollar disaster chart, right? They yeah. typically start in 1980 and they kind of draw a straight line up to 2022 or 2023. And you see the, the increase in number of billion dollar disasters. Uh, NOAA, which is uh, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, put one out this past week, which I thought was even more interesting. But it showed, and I've, I've always kind of stressed this point, but this graphic that just came out, and I can forward it to you after if you want to take a look at it, um, it really highlights... It's not just the increase in billion dollar disasters. It's the increase in frequency and the magnitude, like the compression time between these these, mm-hmm. these events has shortened a lot. Mm-hmm. So like kind of in the 80s, 90s, mm-hmm. it was a little bit more linear. Mm-hmm. But now that, you know, if you kind of think of a sine wave where you can, yeah. you can, it happens in patterns. But then in the last 10, 15 years, all of a sudden the compression time has shortened. The frequency and the magnitude has increased and the duration in between these events has shortened. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it's not just... We typically, when we think of these disasters, you think of hurricanes, right? you think of mm-hmm. floods, you think mm-hmm. of kind of these big impact events. 
But especially in recent years, we're seeing a lot that's related to storms, ice, you know, heat storms, mm -hmm. cold storm. I mean, everything that yeah. is kind of beyond, you know, just that typical acute climate event. So if you think about atmospheric perils in general, whether you believe in climate change or not, the data is there showing that the impact is there, mm -hmm. right? So yeah. if, if for nothing else, there's there's reason for investors to take this seriously. Now, so I think that message is resonating now, whereas if we launched Climate Alpha, say, three years ago, or five years ago, or whatever. I mean, mm -hmm. you you almost have to take advantage of what's happening in the world, and there are bad things that are happening, but it is raising awareness. And I think there's things that, as investors, people are listening to now that in the past they may have been, you know, sitting back saying, "I need more data, I need more proof." But mm -hmm. the proof is in the numbers. Yeah, I mean, I feel like you can always see it. You hear like some new heat, like wave in Europe, like some storm, billion dollar damage. Right. So yeah, so you're saying it because like it's the frequency of the quantum viable like the number of like the amount of dollars and damages you, that's undis you can't dispute that yeah. so well, those are insurance yeah. Items, right? yeah it's a and i mean there, there's a danger there too because one thing you can't do is every time there's an extreme event run and say oh it's climate change right mm -hmm. so there's this yeah. fine balance yeah. between saying okay these are you know because there is obviously natural variability um a lot of this is where people are living too right mm -hmm. i mean you could have the same hurricane hit the coast of florida and we saw this recently. I mean, it can hit a major city or it can go 20 miles north or south and hit barren land. That damage value is going to be very different right? Mm, because it's yeah. hitting an area where no people are. Mm -hmm. So a lot of it is just a fact, you know, a, it's it's a function of where these events are happening. Um, but and and it's it's difficult to sometimes, you know, some, it's very easy to say, OK, now we're seeing this because, you know, solely because of climate change. It's not. It's a difficult puzzle to put together, right? So we just have to be careful. One thing that has improved in recent years, the whole science of attribution, right? Being able to tie the human fingerprint to what's driving these storms um, has increased dramatically in the last few years. So I think in the past, there was a lot of, I don't want to say speculation, but a lot of just people trying to connect the dots. But there actually is more evidence now where scientists on the attribution side can kind of say, you know, with a high degree of certainty that these types of events are certainly fueled by, or at least aided by what's happening on, in terms of, you know, combustion fossil fuels and everything else, mm -hmm. um, and do it with a little bit more scientific integrity than we were able to do in the past. Awesome. So I guess kind of leading into that, can you explain how the, your AI powered software, your climate models, the data science and the spatial finance all converge in climate alpha's approach? Sure. Um, so one thing to be clear, like we don't build our own climate models. We uh -huh. use, you know, what's called the CMIP. Right now, the most recent version is the coupled model into comparison product. So the sixth version is called CMIP six. We use those models. So those are kind of the state of the art climate models. We have about 104 or 206 individual climate models. So we, you know, look at them as an ensemble, but we're taking state of the art climate modeling. You know, we're not doing any of that other than downscaling it. Mm -hmm. So the climate models are the climate models. We're not attempting to do that. We let the experts mm -hmm. do that. Got it. What we do, and I think what's unique about our platform is, and this goes to a differentiation between us and kind of the broader climate risk community, um, we're analyzing this through, I mean, we are a software company, right? At the end mm -hmm. of the day, Climate Alpha is a software company. We're looking at this climate data in, con in the context of all of these other data sets. You know, we have about 1,500 individual data sets. Only about a third of them are climate related. The other two thirds are, again, everything else that matters in terms of valuation. So mm -hmm. it allows us to look at, and the way I like to look at it as, you know, I always kind of break things down to first principles, kind of as an engineer. And um, we, we break it down and look at 
all of this through the lens of principal components, right? So if you kind of look at events or look at valuation events and you know what the triggering events are, sometimes if you kind of rank your principal components, climate might be, just say you're building a model that's got 20 principal components, climate might be number one through 12, right? And mm -hmm. then other variables come in 13 down to 20 or whatever you know, your number is. Other times climate might not show up until 9, 10, 11, 12, or even lower than that, it doesn't mean it's not important, but it's just there's other factors that are driving the importance, you know, relative to that asset valuation. And we can look at that risk appropriately. So what we're what we ultimately do is we're moving away from the idea of deterministic modeling, right? We're not gonna because anytime any way you score a deterministic model, it's gonna be wrong, right? I mean, that's just the way modeling works, whether mm -hmm. it's root mean squared error, mean absolute error, whatever, whatever it is, it's gonna be wrong. And um what we're doing is looking at more from a, a probabilistic perspective. So we'll develop profiles, you know, within this space of possibilities. Anything can happen. Obviously, when you're closer to the center of distribution, mm -hmm. you have higher confidence. But that doesn't mean information in the tails is useless. So we try to present information to users so they understand, you know, where climate is of relative importance, where it's higher and where it's lower. And then the risk is still on the user, right? The risk mm -hmm. is still on the customer to make that decision. But they're doing it with a much more, we think, a much more well-informed perspective. Mm. So they do one of two things. One, they actually, we kind of use it as a flashlight, they're shining it on new answers, right? They're mm -hmm. finding something that they wouldn't have found. And the other use case, which actually I think is even a better use case for them, they might come up with the same determination, but we provide different information for them to help make that decision so they can do it with higher conviction, mm -hmm. right? So ultimately, again, a client, we want them to be you know, the champion. We mm -hmm. want them to be the one that takes credit for managing their portfolio or for identifying where to deploy capital. If we just help them do that more effectively, then that, then our job's done. That's awesome. So could you expand more on like uh, how you um, climate alpha differentiates from uh, your competitors? Yeah. On the software side, again, it's the approaches that we're taking are unique. I think the fact that we have a really differentiated source of data, um, we don't necessarily focus. I know there's always this idea in data science to get more and more data. Mm -hmm. um, we're really trying to identify, and you know, sometimes they're at odds, sometimes they're saying, but we, we really focus on what the smart data is as opposed to the big data, right? So mm -hmm. you can always, if you get more and more data, you can always build a model that's quote unquote right, mm -hmm. but it might be right for the wrong reasons, yeah. right? So what we really try to do is, you know, we downscale our target, right? Our, our area of interest. And then we try to find the data that really is most important to that location. So sometimes it doesn't, you know, we're, we're gonna reduce the dimensionality of our data, and we're going to reduce the ability to overfit models. We might have a smaller number, a smaller set of training data to make that decision, but we feel much more confident that that data is useful for the end user. So I think that's one of the key differentiators on the, the, the platform side. Um, the application side, and this is where I think it's get really um, interesting for what Climate Alpha wants to do, is this goes well beyond real estate, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a, there are ways that we've already studied, you know, we kind of built our own internal working system of identifying these variables, um, how can we apply this to any asset, right? Mm -hmm. So I come from, I don't come from a real estate background. I come from the world of commodities, which is energy, agriculture, um, you know, the things that kind of drive society from a ground up perspective. And, and also in public equities, right? So mm -hmm. you look at stock, you know, stock like, uh, market valuations, a lot of companies do have exposure to climate. They don't even realize or understand it. So there are ways to kind of take the same platform and apply it to, you know, a venture capital investment or apply it to private equity investments or apply it to commodities trading and apply it to, you know, longshore portfolio managers that are looking for trading signals for, 
you know, interact, you know, typically again, we're not looking at daily, but that may be monthly to, to you know, seasonal to sub-seasonal variation within stock prices. Mm -hmm. um, there are climate driven signals in there. Um, we already have success in terms of testing this out. We're already testing this with a few asset managers that really like the idea of what we're doing. So again, this gets into that differentiation between risk. You know, we're not saying what not to do, mm -hmm. but how can we use this information in aggregate to identify signals that may be indicative of future performance? So that's something new. That's something that we're really excited about. And mm -hmm. so far, the way you know we're slowly you know releasing this to people that we know to get some feedback that are mm -hmm. in that space. I've sat in the seat of the people that are releasing to, so I kind of know how mm -hmm. they would approach this data. Um, and all the feedback has been very positive. So this is like a natural evolution of right. The this product. is kind of version two of what we're okay. doing. And you know, right now our core customer base is really those that are managing REITs, those that have that physical real estate portfolio footprint, or you know, we're starting to get more um, more interest from the insurance sector. I guess I wouldn't call this a pivot, but like, have there been other it's not a pivot? It's just an evolution yeah, of what we're doing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, it's just we have a small use case, a mm -hmm. targeted use case here. But there are so many other use cases that we could layer on top of this. And now that the machine learning architecture is, is done and ready, mm -hmm. uh, it's really just a matter of identifying how we can map this to the portfolios of all of these other communities uh, and do it in a way that's kind of scalable. Is there something you guys like currently want to do, but like currently can't because the technology just quite isn't there yet or you just don't have the information um, that you're looking for in like the next, say, yeah. five years? Yeah, there's always more that we do with... Um, there's parts of the world where data is more challenging than others. Mm -hmm. um, you know, satellites obviously helping that, right? There's a lot of data that you're going to use satellite data forever. And um, we have a different problem now. We used, The problem we used to have is there's just not enough data and you'd have to stitch together all these disparate sources just to try to tell a picture. Now we almost have too much data, mm -hmm. but there still are regions of the world, particularly when it gets to things like agriculture and energy, where you, you do need physical signatures on the ground. Um, and the data is not quite where we need it to be. Um, and, you know, think of it right now, like the energy transition is an area that everybody's talking about, right? Mm -hmm. you know, the whole decarbonization, moving from, you know, fossil fuel-based economy to a decarbonized economy that's uh, driven by electricity. Um, that's good to do that properly in origins around the world, right? This isn't one of those areas where the United States is the center of the universe, right? Mm -hmm. This is the whole world, right? Every country that has access to global economic markets have to be part of this equation. And when it comes to things like supply chains, like, you know, just we just take EVs, for example, you know, just the amount of lithium, the amount of cobalt, the amount of, you know, these are required to make this work. You know, every auto manufacturer has a plan to electrify their fleet. But if you look at the amount of lithium that's available today, it doesn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. So they all have these targets, but right. there's just no way in the world they're all going to make this 100% target because as of right now, there's just not enough lithium there. You can only supply if you actually do this and kind of do the math. It can supply the goals of three major suppliers. So every other OEM on the other side is not, they're just not, you know, you might have these nice plans, but if you're if you're constrained by lithium, which is you know, you need to make this project mm -hmm. run, um, it's not gonna happen. So, you know, how can we use other data, you know, again, in the context of this is where climate's a driver, right? So we think about the IRA, you know, this $308 billion windfall that is really earmarked towards transitioning the economy. It's great, right? And it all sounds good on paper, but mm -hmm. it's still subject to these resource constraints. So, you know, how can we get other data that helps us bring that that physical resource limitation side mm -hmm. in the proper context? So, you know, either we're identifying new locations, or either we're looking, you know, helping producers, you know, look for substitutes. I mean, there's a whole series of ways that we can kind of build, you know, bring our platform with users on the commodity side 
to you know either identify, to develop, to test and simulate what it would look like if they did kind of transform their supply chain mix. Um, so mm-hmm. there's a lot of interesting possibilities. So those are those are kind of the things for maybe years three, four, and five. Right now we're just you know we're still early stage. We mm-hmm. just need to generate positive cash flow and get things moving. And then once we kind of have that stability, then uh, we'd certainly love to jump into some of these other areas. Awesome. Would you say like the IRA has helped kickstart some of like or some movement? I no doubt. Off yeah, definitely. It's uh, and we're already seeing just from a geographic perspective in the United States, we have this. We built this tool called the Industrial Renaissance Tracker. Mm-hmm. We're already you're seeing from a geographic perspective where some of these dollars are flowing to. Um, not surprisingly, you know, following my earlier comment, they're typically flowing to states that you would think they would flow to based on political alignments. Right? Mm-hmm. You kind of <laughs> see this red state, blue state thing where the dollars are flowing. Uh, not surprisingly, but I think the, the exciting thing is this 300 and whatever the number is, 270 or 380 billion, mm-hmm. that's really phase one. Like there's going to be a lot more, you know, that will, you know, that that's kind of the start of it, but there's mm-hmm. going to be several more phases where there's a lot more capital. It's going to, you know, it'll help and it's going to be needed to make this transition happen. So um, there's a lot of really interesting things that are going to happen in, in the years ahead because of this. And you know, I'm hoping um, if you look at it purely from economic terms, it makes sense. So I'm hoping that changes the administration pending or if they do if it does change mm-hmm. it shouldn't derail this you know like we've seen in the past you know when we had administration uh changed and all of a sudden the united states was not going to abide by the paris agreement mm-hmm. and then it's mm-hmm. changed when now we are and this is different because if you can just look at this purely on economic terms and mm-hmm. make the case where you don't really need to align yourself with any you know personal or political persuasion it just makes pure economic sense so i'm hoping that this one has legs mm-hmm. I mean, I guess like even though like the, when the U.S. did pull out of the Paris Agreement, it was still kind of the red state, blue state thing you said, oh, yeah. right? where some of the blue states like just voluntarily right. stayed in. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't think that's going to change, right? <laughs> we'll see. I hope uh, not. I think uh, every time I have faith in humanity, something else happens. <laughs> change that. So um, well, what challenges has Climate Alpha encountered in promoting the integration of climate resilient assets into investment portfolios? I know you kind of talked about this earlier. But yeah, a little bit. It's just, uh, yeah, it's, it's it's making investors think differently. Um, there's definitely a generational mm-hmm. change mm-hmm. that we see now. So a lot of the younger investors, and by younger, I mean 30 or below versus people that are my age. It's, there's a difference in terms of how they're receiving. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Typically people that have been in asset management for a while, all they really care about is at that point it's about wealth preservation mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. and the things that are important to them at that stage in their life is very different than what a lot of people that are 30 and below think um so there's a lot of things that are driving how a younger investor wants to think about allocating capital which are all good things and i think this is we're kind of in the midst of this this change but it takes a little while right you mm-hmm. need kind of this you know almost this gentrification of, of the asset management industry to um, you know, help kind of shift where some of this capital is going. And we're seeing it. It's just, it's slow. Um, mm-hmm. The other thing is there's a lot of, uh, you know, again, every every asset manager, it doesn't matter what space you're in, they have regulations that are kind of forcing them, whether they're enforceable regulations or they're company-imposed regulations. But, you know, they have to think about, again, ESG. They have to think about things that they didn't have to think about before. And there's sometimes a disconnect between the idea and the data that's available for them to execute on that idea. Mm-hmm. So ESG fundamentally is the right thing to do. I don't think anybody would argue with that, right? Mm-hmm. If you're going to invest in a person or a geography or a company or anything, you want, as an investor, you want positive returns. 
you also want them to do things that are good, right? You don't want to be investing in things that are harmful to people mm-hmm. or the surroundings. Um, you want them to have morals, right? So you want them to have strong governance. You want them to be equitable. But a lot of the data to measure those things just don't exist. Right? So if we think about E and S and G, the E piece is very heavily weighted towards carbon dioxide. Mm-hmm. And within carbon dioxide, it's heavily weighted towards scope three emissions, right? So a lot of the E story is really just scope three emissions, which are the most uncertain. I mean, they're the largest footprint in terms of emissions, but they're the hardest to quantify. You know, when you think about downstream emissions, it's there's just a lot of estimates, a lot of speculation on what that really means. But E as a whole, there's a lot of other data that kind of falls under that environmental rubric that could have value in terms mm-hmm. of putting that into context of, you know, what does it mean as an investment? And then we move to S and G. These are a lot of softer measures and they're just really, a lot of it's subjective, right? Yeah. There's survey bias. There's just so there's a whole host of issues just purely from a data science side that makes it difficult to say this is a standard measure for what a social score would be or a governance score would be. So um, what we're trying to do is, again, completely 100% on board that ESG, the ideology is the right thing to do, but we're trying to move away from these bucketed groups mm-hmm. and tell in a way that it's much more integrated in fashion and it leads towards returns. And we, we aren't, we're not subject to trying to force test our models with data that may or may not be the right data to test mm-hmm. that use case. So I think there's a huge challenge here because the ESG window, um, the way investments work is there's always kind of this flavor of the month, right? So for the last couple of years, it's been ESG and there's been a lot of, I think, valid criticism as to what it really means and mm-hmm. why it should be enforced. And the ESG window is closing. And at the end of the day, again, investors want to still see positive returns. That window is going to close. And if it closes, then it's done. Mm-hmm. Right? And then finance moves on to something else. Yeah. But there's this opportunity to still kind of steer it in a way that is responsible, that again, hits both the environmental and the financial piece. So I think there still is that window still open. And if we can kind of get through that window and help steer it in a different direction, um, that would be a huge win. But in the back of my mind, I'm always worrying we're, you know, we're kind of running out of time mm-hmm. because, you know, investors typically, even patient investors are still not patient yeah. forever, right? Yeah. They don't have an infinite amount of patience. So at some point, they're like, you know what, this is just not materializing. I'm mm-hmm. on something else. Do you feel like the real estate industry is too, like, hyper-focused on decarbonization? Like, that's yeah. only one aspect of the- No, 100%. I think okay. uh, it's important, but there are so many other things that could be thought about, um, particularly around water, right? Mm-hmm. And, and this is uh, one of the challenges, too, that- you look at these and when you look about at risks, and I was talking about this a bit earlier, you, it's easy to look at the impact of a storm, right? It's easy to look at the impact of, of a windstorm. You know, you look at claims damage. It's a lot harder to look at a slower materializing event, such as, you know, the slow lack of availability of water, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I mean, too much water is easy to see, but when there's not enough water, it's kind of this slower insidious pattern and, you know, it kind of creeps up on you. And then all of a sudden you're stuck with this, you know, I, I'm building a bottling plant, right? I'm a food and beverage company. I'm building a bottling plant somewhere that's going to reply, require a 50 year supply of fresh water. And I'm 12 years into the project and all of a sudden I have no water left. Mm. Right. But that wasn't available or that wasn't obvious when they you know broke ground 12 years prior. So I think these are the kind of things that uh, really need to be part of the discussion and they're still just isolated. But I, you know, I think, the environmental piece needs to be much more holistic and you know, carbon emissions are important, but there's a lot more that can be done you know, to kind of bring that entire environmental evaluation discussion to the table and mm-hmm. do it in a way that's appropriate. 
Yeah, because I, I feel like everything I read is just like decarbonization, decarbonization, decarbonization. Yeah. It really makes you. I mean, it, it is important. Yeah, but there's there is more, more decarbonization. Yeah, definitely. Right, okay, so I guess I kind of want to shift this to more of a positive, like yeah. uplift. Uh, can you share us like a success story from Climate Alpha, the one like you're really proud of, or your company is like really? Um, I mean, I've, this is my fifth real estate company, so I'm proud of the fact that we still exist here. <laughs> that's uh, that's always a challenge, just mm -hmm. keeping the lights on. So um, that that's one thing I really like. We are um, very well received in terms of like nobody that we've talked to has said get out of here. Right? Mm -hmm. They all really like what we're doing. It's mm -hmm. uh, it's taking a little longer just to get the wheels moving. And I get, that's natural, you know, interest rates where they are don't help, right? Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to spend yeah. right now. So I was oh, we'll do it next year or so. Um, those kind of things, you want to move faster. But I mean, the, the team that we have, the reception that we've had, I mean, we, we the, the fortunate thing about being positioned how we are um, with Prague as our CEO is no matter where we go, somebody at the company that we're speaking with has read one of his, mm -hmm. I don't know how many books he's written now, but. You know, so we, it allows us to be inserted in the conversation at a level that we can start by in conversation one and having a real discussion. Whereas in a traditional startup, it might take five or six conversations just to write, you know, find that right person or right group. So um, the ability to do that has been great. Um, the, again, the feedback that we're receiving has been great. Um, the ideas that we're that we're thinking of implementing, I mean, that, that's a nice thing too. Is we've we've gone through this for a year now. And we're doing some of the things that we thought we were doing 12 months ago, but there's a lot we've learned mm -hmm. and we're incorporating that into what will be kind of version two of Climate Alpha. So, um, yeah, I just think we have a really nice tailwind and a really nice groundswell of support, both internally in terms of the team, as well as externally, as far as the client base that we're trying to tap into. Mm -hmm. And uh, we're just really excited about what can happen next year. It's awesome. Yeah. What you're most like developments you're most excited for, like you see like down the line. Um, I think it's really just the one I was talking about earlier, just applying this to other markets. I mm -hmm. just think there's such a massive need for any asset manager of any type to be able to figure this into how they value investments and, if all this works out right, and of course things never do, right? Everyone has planned, but we kind of have these things like segmented, like climate investing, sustainable investing, impact investing. Mm -hmm. You know, if all this plays out, and let's say we fast forward five years, right? It'll just be called investing. Like we're not yeah. gonna have to say, yeah. well, this is a climate tilted investment strategy, or this is impact investing. You know, if this is done in a way that provides value for everybody, it's just gonna be mm -hmm. you know, just right. another investment factor that is part of the calculus of any decision. So that would be success for us. Obviously, we want to have commercial success mm -hmm. as an organization. Um, but in terms of impact in the market, we would love it if that's kind of where we're moving towards. So like changing the whole narrative. It's not just right. one it's or just the other. Right? Yeah. It's just the way any any responsible investor is going to look at evaluating where they're going to deploy capital. What do you think your biggest growth area is going to be? Or like, I guess, in geographic region or, um, I guess, um, field? What do you I see mean, the biggest growth? We are a global company. I mean, technically, we can actually stay that and stand behind it now, right? Mm -hmm. So we launched, we were very focused on North America, you know, US and Canada, but now we started to launch and, you know, we have our risk indicators. Um, you know, we have different types of indicators. We have risk and resilience indicators. Risk indicators we have globally. Resilience we're going to have globally soon. Um, but we can apply, again, apply these same principles and these same tenets to other markets. And I think there's a massive opportunity outside of North America. Um, mm -hmm. I don't want to say that the North American market is crowded, but if you just look mm -hmm. at where, and again, we're not really a climate risk company, but that's where we're bucketed. A lot of the climate risk community is still focused on what's happening with the North America and really with the United States. Um, but we're taking a much broader view. And I think there's a massive amount of opportunity mm -hmm. inside of the US. And can you talk about how your partnership with the CRE and MIT has um, like helped you guys 
Yeah, I mean, just uh, obviously every time I come here, I learn something new, right? So uh, that's always a good thing because I've always had kind of one foot in academia and mm -hmm. it's always nice to every, you know, every time you come, there's something you're coming out of a conversation with that you weren't thinking about before. So that's always positive because it gets us to think about what's next and how we can, you know, bring other things to our platform. Um, I would think, I mean, I would personally say just from experience, MIT has more of an advantage of turning academic ideas into things that are useful for society as mm -hmm. opposed to things that just kind of stay and they're confined within the walls of academia. So mm -hmm. I think for us, it's a good partnership that way because, you know, we're doing what we're doing to, you know, to help grow this business. Mm -hmm. um, and then the other thing is just visibility, right? We've had conversations with people that, you know, based on podcasts that you follow, some other things that, that the Institute is sponsored that we just wouldn't have had otherwise. So uh, it certainly helped with visibility and now we can kind of point things, you know, point people at certain discussions or partnerships that we had in the past uh, and all that's positive for us. I just wanted to thank you for your time. Um, really gr great uh, interviewing you, getting to know more about Climb Alpha. Thank you. Yeah, great. No, thank you. We uh, really uh, enjoy this board guide, and uh, yeah, we, we thank you as well. What an amazing conversation! Thank you, Viet. Thank you, Michael, and thank you to all for joining us today on Meet the Visionaries podcast. We hope you enjoyed hearing from our esteemed guest, Mr. Michael Ferrari. Chief Scientific Officer with Climate Alpha. MIT's Center for Real Estate provides breakthrough knowledge for organizations to capitalize on today's dynamic markets and technologies. So please stay tuned for future episodes by subscribing to our podcast or follow us on social media by visiting cre.mit.edu to learn more. Until next time, take care, listeners.